Okay. This is this tricky mic up here. The switch doesn't work. We are experiencing something unusual today. We are looking at sunshine. And it's so good to see the sunshine after days and days of clouds and rain. The ground is really wet here, very, very wet. But uh, our, our Lord controls all that. He controls the sun and he controls the rain. And we're just to be thankful for everything that we have. We'll turn to John 20, 31, and we're going to talk a little more about that same verse we've been having now for a few weeks. It's not so much about that verse as about what the verse is all about. In John 20, 31, when John is getting close to finishing this book, called the Gospel of John. He says, But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And we're so glad that John explained that to us because there are folks, you know, and there are denominations that go extensively on things that are not written. Oh, they've heard, they've made them up, they're fables, they're stories, or they're supposed to be traditions. But verse 30 kind of explains that for you, where he says, In many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But they're really not necessary because these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Now, for the past few Sundays, we decided to just see what John wrote that was so important to us that we might have life through his name. And we had started at chapter 1. And we've worked our way up to chapter 16. So if you want to turn over to chapter 16 in John, you can uh, hold your place there at John 16 for just a moment. Now let me explain to you that many things are written in the Gospel of John that are not written in the other Gospels. The force of a truth is not measured by the number of scriptures, but by the authority. The majesty of a truth is as ample in one short sentence of the scripture as in a thousand. There is something so very, very important to our salvation that John saw fit to write to us the work of God's Holy Spirit in chapter 16. That's where we are. Now, starting with verse 7, our Lord speaks of going away. So let's read that. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. 
It is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you, but if I depart, I will send him unto you. His going away was by a violent, bloody death, and he knew it. But that's not what was on his mind. He wanted to comfort their sorrowful hearts. Where does it say that? Well, look at verse 6. But because I have said these things unto you, sorrow hath filled your heart. They had anguish of heart because of a human love that they had for him that when he said he was going away, they figured they'd never see him again. All of their hopes were upon him for this life, particularly for this life. They had already forgot that he had told them he was going to prepare a place for them where his father had mansions. Look at John 14, 2. Back up a little bit. John 14, 2 and 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Now that's as much comfort as he could give to the human heart. I'm going to always be with you. Okay. I think that the last thing that dawns in upon a saved individual is that everything you profess to believe and hope for becomes a reality only after death has called you away. Our Lord said in that verse 17, the verse 7 I mean, I go away. What a simple, gentle way of saying after I die. No fear there. Death only condemns those whose sins are not forgiven. The death of our Lord Jesus Christ made null and void the power of death to those that Christ died for. I want you to read it. Hebrews 2, verse 14 and 15. Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. In other words, our Lord Jesus Christ became a human being. That through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. And he says children that God gave him. Look up in verse 13. And again, I put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children which God hath given me. Those are the ones that he died for. The ones that God gave him. So his walking 
and living on earth made Christ the comforter to those he chose to save during his earthly ministry. Look at John 14, 16. John 14, 16. See, he said, I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Which means that at the time, the Lord Jesus Christ was the comforter to those that he was walking amongst. But here he says, in our verse today, the real comforter will be sent to earth if our Lord departs and goes back to heaven. And that is John 16, 7. For if I go not away, the comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. Now here it is that John writes something very needful to our salvation. He describes to us the work of the Holy Spirit upon the heart of God's elect. Now you may question why I said God's elect when it says he will reprove the world. Look at verse 8. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. But hold on now until we reason with you from God's word. All right, let's look at verse 8. And when he is come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Now, this world, what world is he talking about? Turn to John 17 and look at verse 9. One page over. John 17, 9. I pray for them, I pray not for the world, but for them which thou hast given me, for they are thine. It's showing you a difference between God's people that he gave to the Lord Jesus Christ and the world. Where do they live? They live in the world. What part of the world? They live all over the world. There's no saying that this is God's people and nobody else. God's people are wherever the Holy Spirit convicts a heart and saves a sinner. If they're in Africa, if they're in Asia, if they're in Japan, if they're in Europe, if they're in America, Canada, South America, it makes no difference. Wherever the Holy Spirit does the work in the heart of a believer, they become part of the church and of those called... He will reprove the world. Okay? Okay, it's not enough yet. You need a little bit more. Turn to 1 John 2.15. 1 John 2.15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. 
Would God love the world and then tell you not to love the world? You know, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. What world? It's the world of people that he gave to the Lord Jesus Christ to die for. So there's no distinctions as to particular nationality, languages. You can't say he just died for the Jews. You can't say that he just died for this one or that one. It's not true. People come from all over the world. And that's what it means when it says God so loved the world. All kinds of people. And also when the Holy Spirit comes, when he comes to reprove, he doesn't reprove everybody in the world about sin, judgment, righteousness. No. Only the ones that were given to the Lord Jesus Christ that he died for are the only ones that are ever going to be reproved about sin. Some people live in it, love it. All of their lives, they glory in it, they prosper in it, they become wealthy, famous, powerful, they die and go to hell, but they've never been reproved for their sins. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in God's people. All right, let's look at one more scripture about the world, Galatians 6.14. In Galatians 6.14... Paul's saying something very unusual here about the world. He says, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom the world is crucified unto me. You know what that means? He hates the world. He'd crucify it. Also, he says, the world crucify him to hate him. You see, crucifixion is, is a hateful thing. You only put the worst upon the cross to crucify it. He says, the world's crucified to him. He says, and I under the world. There's a mutual hatred between God's people and the world. So that's why when I say that this was all done for God's elect, that's all I can say. I can't say that he did it for everybody. I can't say that he did it for Saddam Hussein and for all of those over there getting slaughtered and all of those who committed all those terrible crimes and for all of those that are worshipers at some statue somewhere. You see, I can't say that for everybody. I know that the Holy Spirit convicts everybody that he's going to save. And that's what this reproving happens to be all about. So now let's look at that word reprove. You see, getting saved is not an easy task and it's not a pleasant task. It's the most difficult thing that ever happens in the life of an individual because it's totally against their nature and their grain. They don't want to give up a thing in this world in order to obtain eternal life. But God's Holy Spirit will bring you to that point. That's why the preacher don't have to worry. He can preach to you day and night. But his job is only to present. It's God the Holy Spirit's job to reprove. Isn't that wonderful? Let's take a look at Revelation 3.19. This is a, uh, a scripture not too many people 
think about. They read it, but they don't give it much thought. Our Lord Jesus Christ, some of the last words that he spoke, says this, as many, as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Isn't that interesting? What do you do to somebody you love? You pet them, you pamper them, you give them everything you got, you go out of your way, you sacrifice for them. What's our Lord say? As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they're sinners. That's God, the Holy Spirit's work to reprove of sin. And that's why our Lord ends up by saying, Be zealous, therefore, and repent. Repent of your sin. Cry unto him for forgiveness. You've sinned already. You can't change it. You can't do one thing about what you have done already. But you can ask for forgiveness. And that's what he says about repent. Come on. Cry for mercy. He's a God of mercy. And then he finishes up by saying, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Whose door? I think it's the door of mercy. And if any man hear my voice and open the door, I'll come into him and will sup with him and he with me. A wonderful invitation. One more time near the end of the book for anybody to knock at the door of mercy and he'll come in. Hang around that door. Don't ever leave it. Stay there. Turn to Hebrews 12 and look at verses 5 through 11. We're still talking about reproving. What is reproving? Well, it's kind of getting taken down. And you know what? People don't like to be taken down. They don't like to be corrected, reproved. But it happens to be the only way you're going to get saved. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. And ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. And that happens to come from Proverbs. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, the Bible is written that mankind is used in the masculine. Not just sons. Daughters have to be chastened and scourged too. Okay? The word son includes men and women. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? They should, anyhow. But if ye be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, then are ye bastards, and not sons. And far furthermore, we have had fathers of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days, talking about your natural father, for they verily for a few days chasten us, after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. You see why the Lord says, I rebuke and chasten? It's for your benefit. 
Now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised whereby. Okay, now let's get back to our verse in, in John 16. And we've gone through the word world. And now we've gone through the word reprove. Now let's start on the first thing that he reproves a person about, and it says, of sin. Turn to John 3, 18. John 3, 18, still part of John's gospel, the things that he wanted folks to know about. And this isn't in any of the other gospels either, in just these words. He that believeth on him is not condemned. But he that believeth not is condemned already. Can you understand a person being condemned for not doing anything outwardly except not believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, but that's the condemnation upon humanity. Our Lord makes the rules. He doesn't say you're condemned because you get divorced or you're condemned because you murdered somebody or you're condemned because you stole something. No. He says you're condemned because you have not believed. These other things are just natural. You're a sinner. There's none righteous before God, none at all. But the condemnation is because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Now look at verse 36 in that same chapter, speaking about the wrath of God abiding on the head of a person. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. It's serious business. So serious that it's not worth playing religion. It's not worth leaving salvation in the minister's hands or leaving it in the priest's hands or leaving it in the church's hands. If they've taught me wrong, well, then it's their... No, they don't take no fault. They don't take no guilt. The wrath of God is upon a him or a her. It's on an individual head. You as an individual have got to be a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ or the wrath of God abideth on you. Simple, sixth-grade English in the Scriptures. Let's dig a little deeper into this thing about sin and show you the rules that God made, and that's in uh, Ezekiel 18.4. Ezekiel 18.4. It's in very, very simple language also. Behold, all souls are mine. That's kind of dogmatic. Everybody born upon the face of the earth, their soul is a creation of God and it's his. As the soul of the Father, so also the soul of the Son is mine. Anybody in the family the soul that sinneth, it shall die. Father, son, daughter, mother, grandmother, anybody. They all fall in this category. The soul that sinneth, it shall die. 
Now we're talking about the Holy Spirit reproving about sin. So when you read in God's Word sentences like we've just read, the Holy Spirit makes it real to His people. They stop and think, the soul that sinneth it shall die. What does it mean, die? Just the body? No, he's not talking about that kind of dying. He's talking about eternal death. Because sin has to be paid for. Another rule that God made. Turn to James 2.10. Now there are some folks that think they're doing a pretty good job at keeping the law. Oh, there might be a point or two where they fail a little bit, but they're doing a pretty good job. James is going to blow that one out for you. James 2.10 For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. Now, you know how that works? The simplest description that I can give you of that is take a chain with ten links in it. It stands as a unit of ten links. Take any one of those links and cut it out of there or break it, and that ten-linked chain is broken just by one of those links being cut no matter which one it is, the one on the bottom, the one on the top, or the one in the middle. Destroy one link, and that ten-link chain is no more a ten-link chain. And that's what James is telling you. You break one of those rules of the law, the Ten Commandments, and you've broken them all. It's tough. That's where we are. And the reason for making it tough for making that law so tough is to make you turn to the Redeemer. The law wasn't given for you to keep. It's for you to examine and see that you can't. So turn to a substitute who did. All you got to do is believe that he died for you, not for somebody else, for you. Romans 3.23. We're still talking about sin. Romans 3.23 it's very important, the first on that list about being reproving of sin, it's a very important lesson to learn. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. We're showing you scriptures that the Holy Spirit can use to open your eyes to show you you need a Redeemer. Romans 5.8 In Romans 5.8 it says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, that can be spoken like this too. While we were yet sinners, or while we were going to be sinners, Christ died for us. Because none of us were born. Some of these others were born when Christ died for them. They were sinners. 
but this goes right down for the next 2,000 years. The Lord Jesus Christ has already died for his people knowing that they were sinners. But you see, the work of God's Holy Spirit is to reprove of sin, the first thing that we're talking about. Now, let's take one more peek at our, in John 16. John 16, read that scripture once more. When he has come, he will reprove the world of sin. Is there any doubt now that everyone is a sinner? That there's a necessity of learning and knowing how you can get these sins forgiven now? So the next point that comes up, that once you're reproved of sin... Now it says, and of righteousness. What about this righteousness? Well, turn to Romans 3.10, and we're going to find out, first of all, that the same way that everybody is a sinner, we're going to find out that nobody has any righteousness. Romans 3.10 says, For as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, what's so informative about that well I want to tell you God made a rule that said in order to enter heaven in order to have eternal life you must be perfectly righteous and he says and I have given you a law and that law says if you keep me perfectly you'll obtain eternal life What happens to people? We just read there's none righteous. So that leaves them without hope. That leaves them without a leg to stand on. Well, some folks might say, well, I've done this and I've done that and it's considered righteous. Well, look at Isaiah 64, 6. Isaiah 64, 6. Don't misunderstand that you're supposed to be kind to neighbors, kind to animals. You're supposed to be honest amongst your fellow men. You should be tender-hearted. You should be loyal. You should be true. All those things are expected of you. But they don't count towards your salvation. Look at it. Isaiah 64, 6, But we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. Your righteousnesses? The good things we just mentioned? That's right. Filthy rags, when you want to use them for salvation, they don't count. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. You see, mixed in with all of your righteousness, mixed in with the good things that you've done is a lot of iniquity, or an awful lot. So you no sooner do something good and you cancel it out by sinning anyhow. Now turn to 1 Corinthians 1.30. And we're going to find out that the Lord Jesus Christ 
is made unto us righteousness. It says, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. See, all these things you cannot obtain by yourself are obtainable through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how did he how did he obtain a righteousness that that can do us some good? Well, whether you can understand it or not, the Lord Jesus Christ kept all of God's rules, all of God's law, perfectly. There isn't one thing that he flawed in, never even thought a wrong thought, never said a wrong word, and never committed a foul deed. He kept the law perfectly, and three different times the voice of God boomed down from heaven and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. So there was a physical hearing of God's approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. But what does this mean, though? By him keeping the law perfectly and him being God means that he earned the eternal life that the law promised. And it promised it to human beings. It didn't promise it to angels or to spirits. That promise the laws are made to human beings. So as a human being, he earned eternal life by keeping the law perfectly. But being God gives him the prerogative right of giving this eternal life that he earned to as many as he purposed to give it to. Again, we got to say it's those that the Father gave him to die for. It's a specific number of people, but nobody knows the number or who they are. The only way you can tell if you're one of those that Christ earned a righteousness for is by you coming to him. By you coming to him as a lost sinner and pleading for that righteousness, pleading for eternal life, pleading to have your sins forgiven. If you don't lose that pride of life, you'll never gain eternal life. Now, this also is given to the sinner by imputation. When God saves an individual, they don't become better. I think an individual is at his best when he's an awakened sinner. When he fears the judgment of God is going to fall upon him before he ever gets to Christ, that's when you're on your good behavior. A lot of times when God saves a sinner, they have a tendency... Their natural, normal human heart has a tendency to kind of slide back. Just take things a little bit easy. Cool it. So God doesn't give you a portion of Christ's righteousness and say, here, you take it and you keep it, and if you lose it, you're in trouble. 
That righteousness remains in our Lord Jesus Christ. It's imputed to you. It's put to your account. And your account reads that you are perfect. How do you feel about it? You feel like a hypocritical, low-down sinner because of the wickedness of your heart, your nature, and your thoughts. And you carry this wicked nature to the grave with you. This new nature that's within you fights that old nature, is on top of that old nature, and keeps you following God through his word, following him day by day in meditations upon scriptures, living upon the promises, the hope that you have of eternal life, carries you through this darkened world. This world that wants to blind you, lead you, and corrupt you with everything that's in it. The plots and plays on TV, the music that you hear, the lyrics, everything in this world is to bring the human mind into captivity of the flesh. And that's easy to do. The flesh loves it. Feed the flesh with what it wants, and it's a captive. And this is the whole plan of Satan in this world system. But you need a righteousness. And this righteousness is in Christ, and he gives it to as many as come unto him. That's what the Holy Spirit teaches you about righteousness. That you haven't got any and you need some and it's in Christ and he gives it to you. He imputes it to your account by you coming to him as a lost sinner. It's that simple. But it's the hardest thing you'll ever do because your heart and mind is set upon things in this world. You love the world. You love everything about it and you don't want to give it up. And that's the natural, normal human heart. That's why it's God's work to do that, not mine and not anybody else's. All right, now the third thing that the Holy Spirit reproves about is judgment. Isn't that interesting? People don't want to talk about judgment. People don't want to talk about death. Death happens. This young man we talked about, a Catholic, never read scriptures, probably went to church with his family, worshipped Mary, had statues, had him in the car, maybe in the backyard, maybe in the front yard, took holy water, had communion, all those things that are part of religion. Was he ever a lost sinner? Did he ever ask for mercy? I don't know. I wasn't. I don't know his life. But if he was a Roman Catholic, he never did, because that's not necessary. You don't have to be a lost sinner and ask for anything. All you got to do is belong to the church. The priest will take care of the rest. They promise you everything's going to be fine. Just do what we tell you, even though it's not in the Bible. Isn't that something? Everything about it. Just do what we tell you. Well, people don't like to do what the Lord tells them. And so they don't even want to mention judgment. 
Death and judgment go together. Well, who's going to be the judge? We'll turn to John 5 and look at verse 22 and 27. John 5, 22 and 27. This is eye-opening. Who's the judge? The same one you called to mercy for. The same one who's the Redeemer, the Savior, the Creator. He's also the judge. For the Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. Okay, so he's a judge. Well, what can he do? Has he got any power to do anything once he judges anybody? Look at verse 27. And have given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Hmm. The Holy Spirit's going to teach you about judgment. All right, now turn to Hebrews 2.14. It's a little bit more about judgment. Because somebody had power to commit people to hell. And death was the instrument that conveyed people, and they were scared silly about death. Now our Lord Jesus Christ became a human being. We read this this morning, but we're going to read it again. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same that through death. See, death isn't to be feared. Our Lord used it as a conquering agent. Through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Do this and live, and they couldn't. So our Lord Jesus Christ died in, in the elect's place so that they would not have to live always in bondage fearing death, but just live after him, live for him. Now what is this judgment? When's it going to take place? How's it going to happen? We'll turn to Revelation 20 and look at verse 11. Revelation 20 and verse 11. And I saw a great white throne and him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. You get the picture. Suspended in space. 